0: Welcome to the official Slate Star Codex podcast for September 4th, 2019. Title, List of Passages I Highlighted in My Copy of Ages of Discord. Turchin has some great stories about unity versus polarization over time. For example, in the 1940s, unity became such a problem that concerned citizens demanded more partisanship. Quote, Concerned about electoral torpor and meaningless political debate, the American Political Science Association in 1946 appointed a committee to examine the role of parties in the American system. Four years later, the committee published a lengthy, and alarmed, report calling for the return of ideologically distant, distinct, and powerful political parties. Parties ought to stand for distinct sets of politics, the political scientists urge. Voters should be presented with clear choices, end quote. I have vague memories of similar demands in the early 90s. Everyone was complaining that the parties were exactly the same and the elites were rigging things to make sure we didn't have any real choices. On the other hand, partisanship during the Civil War was pretty intense. Quote, Another indicator of growing intra-elite conflict was the increasing incidence of violence and threatened violence in Congress, which reached a peak during the 1850s. The brutal caning that Representative Preston Brooks of South Carolina gave to Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts on the Senate floor in 1856 is the best-known such episode, but it was not the only one. In 1842, after Representative Thomas Arnold of Tennessee reprimanded a pro-slavery member of his own party, two Southern Democrats stalked towards him, at least one of whom was armed with a bowie knife, calling Arnold a damned coward. His angry colleagues threatened to cut his throat from ear to ear. According to Senator Hammond, the only persons who did not have a revolver and a knife are those who have two revolvers. During a debate in 1850, Senator Henry Foote of Mississippi pulled a pistol on Senator Thomas Hart Benetton of Missouri. In another bitter debate, a New York congressman inadvertently dropped a pistol. It fell out of his pocket, and this almost precipitated a general shootout on the floor of Congress. End quote. Turchin places the peak of U.S. unity and cooperation around 1820 and partly credits the need to stand together against Indians. Quote, A particularly interesting case is 18th century Pennsylvania. The following discussion follows closely the text in Turchin 2011. Initially, European settlers were divided by a number of ethnic and religious boundaries. The English found it difficult to cooperate with the Germans and the Irish, and each ethnic group was further divided into feuding sectarian groups, Quakers against Anglicans, German Lutherans against Moravians and Mennonites. Yet by the end of the 18th century, the European settlers had forged a common identity, white people, in opposition to the natives. As Nancy Shoemaker shows, these meta-ethnic labels, whites versus reds, were not evoked as soon as settlers and natives came into contact. Rather, during the course of the 18th century, Europeans and Indians gradually abandoned an initial willingness to recognize in each other a common humanity. Instead, both sides developed new stereotypes of the other, rooted in the conviction that they were peoples fundamentally at odds, by custom and even by nature. The evolution of civic organizations reflected this expanding definition of common identity. Clubs with ethnic and denominational membership criteria appeared in Pennsylvania during the 1740s. These associations represented what Putnam called bonding rather than bridging social capital. For example, the St. Andrews Society was narrowly focused on helping the Scots, while Deutsche Gesellschaft did the same for the Germans. However, As settler-native warfare intensified, especially during the second half of the 18th century, the focus of civic organizations gradually shifted to charity for any victims of Indian attacks, without regard for their ethnicity or religious denomination. The social scale of cooperation took a step up. Of course, there were definite limits to this new bridging social capital. The Indians were most emphatically excluded— In fact, the integration of white people developed explicitly in opposition to the Indians. Although the above description applies to pre-revolutionary Pennsylvania, a very similar dynamic obtained on the northwestern frontier in Ohio after the revolution. As Griffin notes, for white Americans, Indians existed as cultural glue, since the hatred of them was fast becoming a basis of order. End quote. This passage stood out to me because modern racial commentators focus on whiteness as an idea that evolved in opposition to, and to justify oppression of, blacks. But the Indian theory makes some sense too, especially because Northerners would have more exposure to Indians than they did to black people. But I notice I've never heard anyone else talk about this, and most of the history books I've read read treat Indians as too weak to be an important enemy or have much of a place in the early American consciousness. One factor leading to greater polarization was elite overproduction, here represented by more office seekers than federal offices. This was apparently a well-known problem in early America. Quote, Despite the increase in government posts, the supply was overwhelmed by demand for such positions a horde of office seekers nearly turned Jackson's inauguration into a riot. Abraham Lincoln once said, were it believed that vacant places could be had at the North Pole, the road there would be lined with dead Virginians. And most dramatically, although in a later period, President James Garfield was assassinated by a rejected office seeker in 1881. End quote. And so on. Some of Turchin's measures of cooperation versus polarization are a bit odd, but I have to respect the big pictureness of someone who will literally just look at the occurrence of the word cooperation in various books. Quote It is interesting that cultural metric data supports Fraser's subjective perception of declining cooperation between business and labor. For example, the frequency of the word cooperation in the corpus of American books grew rapidly during the Progressive Era and somewhat less so during the New Deal. After reaching a peak in 1940, there was a minor decline during the 1950s, followed by an increase toward the second peak of 1975. After 1975, however, the frequency of this word went into a sustained decline. Google n-gram is an imperfect instrument with which to trace cultural shifts. One problem is that the same word, e.g. capitalism, can be used with either positive or negative valence, and n-gram does not allow one to separate these different meanings. Cooperation, however, is rarely used in the negative sense. Because of its predominantly positive valence, its overall frequency should provide us with a proxy for how much a social society values, cooperative values. Checking different variants, cooperation, capital cooperation, cooperative, etc. yields the same overall rise-fall dynamics during the 20th century and up to 2008 where the current Google Book database stops. Furthermore, a more specific phrase, labor-business cooperation, again traces out the same secular cycle. Although with significant significant differences during some decades, e.g., the nineteen twenties. Finally, corporate greed, with its predominantly negative valence, is another check on the validity of this result, and it is reassuring that during the twentieth century its frequency moved in the opposite direction from the two positive terms. End quote. Finally, quote. There is an interesting parallel between the Great Depression and the 1970s bear market. Both periods of economic hardship, although it goes without saying that the Great Depression was a much more severe crisis, were broadly interpreted as empirical evidence against the prevailing economic doctrine. The naked laissez-faire capitalism in the first instance, more cooperative relations between business and labor in the second. Yet it is much more likely that the primary mechanism— Responsible for long-term economic decline slash stagnation in each case was the negative phase of the Chondrativen cycle, perhaps supplemented by ex- exogenous shocks, e.g. the 1973 oil embargo. Yet in each case, a prolonged period of economic troubles helped to delegitimize the prevailing ideological regime. End quote. Thanks for reminding me there's yet another cycle I need to study, one that supposedly determines the rate of technological advances. Maybe that's my next book review. This audio version of Slate Star Codex is provided with the permission of Scott Alexander. I am not Scott. I'm Jeremiah. And you can find me at wearenotsaved.com where I also have a podcast. For anyone wishing to reference this content, please do so by linking to the original post. If you think having an audio version of Slate Star Codex is valuable, and you have nothing better to do with your money, consider donating at patreon.com slash sscpodcast, or leave us a review somewhere. Until next time.